Good morning. My name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm the senior pastor here, and we're so glad that you're here to worship. If I haven't met you yet, I would love the chance to get to know you. Gracie mentioned that yellow visitor card in the pew rack in front of you. We would love for you to fill one of those out, and we'll meet you in the narthex where we have a gift for you. If you're here with us online, we say welcome to you again as well. We are in the fourth Sunday of our October sermon series on wisdom called Wisdom to Live By, where we have been looking at wisdom literature, the Psalms and Proverbs, and even Job on Wednesday nights during one of our classes, as well as listening to the wisdom and insight that church members have to share with us. And so you've heard from Ann Brunette and Diane Wild last week. You heard from Marshall Brown and uh, Susan Metter wrote a piece for us on the blog, so I hope you have seen that as well. Um, but we are just capturing that this knowledge that we share with one another is important. And though we did not start in verse one of Proverbs four today, it reinforces this idea that we must share this knowledge that we have gained, that it matters that people pass on their wisdom from generation to generation. It actually begins this way, a father is instructing his son, and he says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction, pay attention and you will gain understanding. I give you sound teaching, so do not forsake this learning. He then says that, you know what? I was once a son in the same position, listening to my father. And what he taught me, what he said to me, I have taken hold of and planted within my heart. I've kept these commands and because of them, I have found life. And so we can relate to this idea of what we have learned from our parents or from our elders has been adapted and taught to our kids. Uh, this wisdom that we've learned, not just from family, but from teachers or supervisors or elders, have shaped to mold, uh, have molded us and shaped us into who we are. So this makes me want to begin with asking you what pieces of wisdom you have learned from others that you hold on to and you remember and you recall often. One thing my mom repeatedly taught to me as I was growing up was that two halves don't make a whole. Uh, she was not talking about mass. <laughs> she was talking about people and relationship, that sometimes when we talk about romantic relationship or marriage, we talk about finding our better half, which might be true for some of you, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that's not true for me, okay? We talk about finding our other half or completing ourselves, but what she meant was that we're all individuals and we have to have a sense of self and we have to be secure and confident in who we are. And then when we find someone else, it's a whole person and a whole person coming together, complimenting one another and helping one another to grow. I had a seventh grade math teacher, um, and it's truly astounding that I remembered anything from math. <laughs> His name was Coach Harden, and every single time we took a test, he would stand up in front of us and he would say, students, it's not about luck, it's about preparation. And so over and over in my life, as I've had something to speak or to turn in or a test, I have thought, it's, it's really not about luck. It's about the hard work and the preparation that you put in to be successful. Last week, we heard from Marshall, who's a longtime member and the lay leader of our church, and he gave us this wisdom about our giving. 
He said that uh, he used to live where he was writing his checks to the church out of the crumbs of what was left over. But he started to practice giving from his first fruits, letting his tithe or his check or his Venmo transaction to the church to be the first thing that he does. And it created in him this trust in God to provide. And you know, that wasn't the first time that I heard Marshall say that. I heard it five years ago. And still, it makes me wanna pull out my checkbook and trust that God will provide. It reminds me that when I get scared to let go, I don't have to live with this scarcity mindset. I can live in the abundant kingdom of God. So I'm pointing out to you, yes, the wisdom that I have learned, but also the fact that this wisdom literature, this scripture shows us that this kind of wisdom we have gained from others is important and it shapes us. So I want you to think about what comes to mind for you, but take it a little further. How can you capture it? How can you not let it go? How can you share it with others? How can you pass it on to your children or your grandchildren or those that you mentor or teach or care about? In the next section of Proverbs chapter four, the father alludes to this imagery that we talked about in Psalm one, in our first sermon of this series, this choice that we make between two paths in life, the path of the righteous or the path of the wicked. Remember we said the wicked are not out there, like outside of ourselves. Uh, the wicked are described as people who act as if they don't need any instruction. They don't need any help. They've got it all figured out. And so the father is saying to the, the, the son, I instruct you in the way of wisdom, and that leads to a straight path. It leads to a path where you don't stumble and you don't fall or your steps are not hampered. And he gives this great image. He says, this path of righteousness that you follow, it is like the rising sun. It is like the morning sun shining ever brighter until the full light of day. And so any of us who have been up before the sun has risen and we've been out in the streets or on the trails and we've watched the sun come up can imagine this illumination, right? Here is the life that we're invited to. Here is the path that we can follow. And I believe everything else that he says in this proverb, which is our selected passage for today, shows us how to live on that path of light. He says, do not let these words out of your sight Keep them within your heart, write them on your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. So these are words that affect the health of your body, but perhaps also the body of believers. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity, keep corrupt talk from your lips, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. This, he is saying, son, is good wisdom to live by. It's wisdom for the body. So as we think about what it might mean to guard our heart, to consider this entity from which everything else flows, right? We know the writers are not just talking about an organ in the body or an organ in the belly. <laughs> talking about this thinking feeling, sensing, center. And this permission that we're given to guard it sounds like we should pay attention to who has access to it. 
to how we care for it physically, to what we allow to enter it. It sounds like our hearts are not really a free-for-all, but we have this invitation to set limits, to set boundaries. We can decide, we can be thoughtful about what we consume and who we spend time with, knowing that that shapes our heart. There are these uh, verses in, in both in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter six that, uh, that this proverb made me recall and they're translated a little differently. They say, one says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the other one says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so today, part of our task is to think about what is the condition of my heart? What is flowing from it? Is it hardened? Is it oozing over with hate or jealousy or resentment? Or is it full? Is it pouring forth compassion and care and self-control and understanding? The second part of the body he attends to is our mouth. To keep perversity free of our mouth, to keep corrupt talk from our lips. There are so many places throughout scripture that echo this proverb. The very first that I thought of was James chapter two. You gotta love James, because he gets right at it, right? He says, um, he's talking about something small that seems weak, but is actually really powerful. So he talks about the bit in a horse's mouth. Like you pull it just a little and this huge animal moves. He talks about the rudder of a ship. You start some course correction and you can actually uh, move that big thing. He talks about a small spark that starts a whole forest fire. And this is what he says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body but it is also a fire. He calls it a world of evil among the parts of the body. Later in that same chapter, he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who were made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Now, I don't know that he's talking about cussing. You can decide for yourself if you'd like to try substituting some words, you know? He's talking about a body of believers paying attention to how we speak to one another, praising God on one day, cursing one another the next. Paul picks up on this in his letters in Ephesians chapter four in his instructions for Christian living. He says, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so the writers are telling us, right? Tame your tongue, watch your mouth, because you know that words have the power to build people up or to tear them down. And so naturally in this moment, we can be honest about the ways that we let corruption come from our lips. Sometimes we find ourselves stirring up gossip or getting in the middle of it or spreading it. Uh, sometimes we spread ideas based on perceived truth, but we haven't actually taken the time to investigate the facts or to ask somebody who was directly involved. Sometimes it is intentionally 
hurting people with our words because we are hurt or feeling insecure or defensive. Sometimes it's uh, sticking our foot in our mouth, like unintentionally saying the wrong thing and having to check our egos and go back and learn and make amends. Sometimes in this world, it feels like we need mouth guards to keep ourselves from spewing on others or to protect us from those elbows that other people are throwing. And I think all of us really can relate to those moments when we have um, not asked for a spewing of words on us by a coworker or a family member or a friend. You know, words of attack that we've endured that we start to allow to seep into our skin and make us believe that we're someone other than we're not, right? Suddenly those uh, become the voices in our heads. And so how do we really deal with hateful criticism or less than constructive feedback that oftentimes we didn't ask for? You know, how do we turn off that feedback loop in our minds? You know, I'll share with you that what I'm still working on is, is how to stay present in my, to my day or to my family or to my other tasks when those hits uh, come unexpectedly. But what I've gotten a lot better at is knowing what to do when it happens, where to turn, who to turn to. And so I know who to go to for truth. You know, the people that can say, you know what, here's maybe something you can learn from that, or that's completely not true. That is that other person's problem. I know the people that can give me direction and set me back on the path. I have a coach. I have a therapist. I know who to go to to share my feelings. So often we start to manage these uh, encounters instead of allowing ourselves to feel them, to admit that we're human. And it hurts when someone comes at us in a certain way. And I think that perhaps the father knew that what comes from other people's mouths also impacts our ability to keep our eyes straight ahead, to keep running towards our goals or our church's goals or our family's goals without letting these other voices of doubt or fear or malice or unbelief derail us from who God has called us to be or where God has called us to go. There's this great verse in Hebrews chapter 12. You know it because it talks about this cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, but then it says, you have to throw off everything that hinders you and the sin that easily entangles you. Not your sin, someone else's sin that wraps around you and keeps you from running forward this race that is marked out for you. You have to keep going with perseverance and endurance and fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. And so the Father says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Another aspect of this, perhaps, uh, what makes it hard for us is that it's so easy in our culture not to let our eyes look to the left and look to the right and to compare our life to that of our peers, no matter what age we are to wonder why they are more successful or more powerful or more healthy or connected or wealthy or revered. One commentator said that this admonition, it's not about tunnel vision, you know, which fails to see the big picture or to listen to anyone else. It's about our vision being focused. 
It's about knowing what we are after because God has called us to a joyful and abundant life. When I was uh, five years old, I joined the swim team in my neighborhood and they called us guppies. And uh, most of us guppies were good enough to swim a 25 meter, 20, one way, one lap by ourselves, only occasionally grabbing the lane uh, to hold on. But really, since I started swimming at age five, I learned that I love the water and I wanted to be swimming all the time. And so summer after summer, my brother and sister and I would walk from our house to the pool, often barefoot, um, and go to swim practice and stay all day long. As I got older, I joined the high school swim team and wanted to become a little more uh, competitive in it and uh, would wake up really early before school and go swim at the local rec. And my neighbor, Chris, always picked me up and it was like extra time sleeping in the car because he would just blow the heat on my face. <laughs> what was hard though was jumping in the cold water after that. But I learned uh, through swimming and through becoming uh, more involved in a sport and more committed to a sport what I was good at, you know, what I should focus on. Uh, most people can do freestyle, that's kind of the easy one, and maybe you know what freestyle is if you've been uh, taught to swim, but I learned that breaststroke was really what I was good at. Um, and, and all throughout the time I was swimming, there are, you know, different tips and techniques and strategies you can learn to become a better swimmer, but there was one that really stuck with me. Uh, when you are swimming freestyle, your head is sort of naturally going from side to side. And so when you find yourself in a race, uh, it's sort of easy to look to your right and look to your left and figure out where you are in the pack. But when you're doing breaststroke, your head is coming out of the water every single time. So if you look to the right or you look to the left, it's noticeable, <laughs> but you also lose time. And you've watched the Olympics, you know that all of these uh, heats come within like a fraction of a second, right? You are winning by a fingertip touch. Now, the other thing about swimming in the midst of a race, there may be tons of people out there, your entire family cheering for you. You can't hear anything. It's just you in the water making a choice. And so what I learned was that if I wanted to win, and I wanted to win, <laughs> I had to keep my eyes fixed ahead of me. I had to not look to the right or to the left. I had to decide the path I was going to take. The race of life is not about winning, but we gain when we stop looking to the left and looking to the right and fixing our eyes ahead, fixing our eyes on Jesus, our pioneer our perfecter of our faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.